By a show of hands, anybody else sweating to death in here? Okay, so I guess I'm out. Sorry, I, see, I saw you out there. I just we're outnumbered. We're going to jump right in. Second Peter chapter three. screen of death. I've got no signal. Is there something I'm missing over here? I'm plugged in down there. Listen, I know what I, I, I've mastered the on button. So it's sounding like you need to punch something back there to get it up here. Does that do that? No? Alright, well I'm turning around then today. Technology, what can you do? Second Peter chapter three. It takes a village. We can do without it. We've been preaching for two thousand years, so I, I think uh, not me personally, but the gospel has survived technology or lack thereof. Second Peter chapter three. We're going to begin in verse fourteen. We'll, we'll just go on without her. Did you turn that off then? Then we can turn this off. How's that? There we go. Alright. Second Peter chapter 3. See, Glenn, it all worked out. Verse 14. He says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot or blameless. Considering that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them some things which are difficult to understand, which the untaught and the unstable twist to their own destruction, as they also do the rest of the scriptures. You, therefore, since you know this already, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led, being led away by the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Sometimes there is an irony to be found in, in warnings in the Scriptures. And the irony here, of course, is that Peter is saying that Paul writes some things that are difficult to understand. Because if you read Second Peter, you'll find that there's quite a few things that are difficult to understand. Um, so, so I find that a little bit irony in that. Um, and, and Peter only writes a, a few short letters, and he manages to squeeze some difficult topics in. We want to proceed with caution is, is his general warning. And we're going to be talking about that today. He's concerned uh, about the misuse of Christ's return. We, we want to understand what he's talking about. We're going to branch out into other topics, of course. But, but I want to look really kind of specifically just to, to get a, a foundation of, of, uh, of something before we move on and, and broaden it out. 
but we need to, to look at his main topic. And, and he's been talking about Christ's return and how people are going to abuse uh, this, this topic of, of, of Christ's return and, and they're going to use it for, for various purposes. And he, he's, saying, he's warning this church, he's saying, don't be led astray by them. Uh, because he says, now, now there's, there's different groups that do this. Uh, not everyone abuses it intentionally. He says, he, he specifically refers to two groups. He, he talks about the untaught. That's the first group he mentions. We should know who he's talking about. That's important. In other words, they're not advanced in Scripture. They might actually honestly believe some of this. We talked about this uh, several months ago. Uh, people who are, are wrong, but they don't intend to be. Uh, they're, they're like the people that Paul talked about in Hebrews, that, that were, uh, they, they were not really advanced yet. And, and they're kind of handling heavy topics, and, and they're not equipped to do so yet. And so they're coming out with some wrong errors. They're untaught. The other group of people is the unstable. Unstable people. He says, now, it is possible that this comes directly from their lack of depth, that they're unstable because they're not, uh, they're not aware of, of these things. But unstable is, is kind of a different thing. A person that's unstable, they kind of shift back and forth. They're not grounded in, in anything. And it could be emotions that make them unstable. It, it could be all sorts of factors. It could be pressure from this group or that group that make them unstable. I'm going to go with this group today, and then tomorrow I'm going to go with this group. I don't know what to do. And there's a lot of factors that make people unstable. Well... Whatever the case, he says, this is a danger to, to your understanding of, of Scripture, and it's going to make you vulnerable to those people who do intentionally lead uh, people astray. Now, I do want to notice what people are not mentioned in this passage, because that's important. Uh, he's not necessarily referring, in these two groups, to specifically... Uh, within the church, intentionally wrong people. Untaught and unstable. Now, if you put a doctrinally deep topic in front of a novice, you have a perfect storm for disaster, for dramatic scriptural errors that lead people astray. And so there are times when even doctrinally grounded people, even people with the, they should be where they're able to, to disseminate the scriptures, where even they get this strange idea. Maybe that speaks more to the unstable than to the, than, than to the untaught. But where do they get it? And we could develop a long list of, of contributing factors, couldn't we? Uh, for doctrinal error throughout history. There's quite a few of them. And that's not our main topic. I want to talk about a specific main idea. And this is how, remember, our idea is things that steal our joy. And we're going to be talking today about assumptions. How assumptions steal our, our joy. And I want to differentiate between what we talked about last week. We talked about expectations. We, we talked about really our... Our, our connections between people and our self-talk. The, the things amongst ourselves and, and other people that, that lead us 
having too high expectations of people, or having too low of expectations of people, or, or having these dramatically high expectations of, of what I'm supposed to be. What These various things that, that we talk and accept. But today, when we talk about assumptions, we're not going to be talking about other people because basically assumptions of other people is your expectations. We're, we're going to be largely talking about our assumptions scripturally, spiritually, religiously, that, that we come and approach the Bible with. It really has more to do with our relationship with God that we are primarily looking at today. Uh, so I want to look at 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. Second Corinthians chapter 10. He says, we do not, in verse 3, he says, we do not walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not physical, but they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds and casting down every argument and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Uh, we want to focus on this, this first thing. We, we've done this a little bit differently, and, and it probably will be different for the rest of the uh, for the rest of the series. We, we typically the way we structure the sermons is, is to say, uh, "Here's how things steal your joy," and we conclude with, "Here's how to avoid it." We're going to actually do that in the reverse. We're going to look at how to avoid this, and then we're going to say why uh, today. And we want to do things uh, and, and look at this. He says. Um, we take every thought in captivity. And I want to look back, as we look at how to do this, we've actually already done this in our introduction. Uh, I, I did that as we looked at Second Peter. We're going to look at a couple of things that we do. First of all, to avoid the problem to, of, of being untaught and unstable. I, I, I did this. I illustrated it. Uh, and that is, is, a, is a word that's important. I'm getting feedback in my ear back there, so uh, I don't know if that's an adjustment you need to make or I need to make. Um, but he, we look at an important word, and that's called context. Context is so important. And what do we do? We, we, we look at various things within Second Peter to identify what he's saying and what he's not saying. Those are so vital and because... There are difficult texts, and yes, even Peter wrote some things that are difficult, but certainly, I mean, I imagine that Peter was referring to the book of Romans. I've always thought that, maybe the book of Hebrews, I don't know, but Romans is extremely difficult. And I assume that a lot of people, when, when you have doctrinal errors, you can always trace them to the book of Romans today. Right? Can't you? It's just like people, oh, and... and all sorts of things, and it always goes to Romans, Romans 8, Romans 12, Romans 5, anywhere in the book of Romans, someone's got an error. So context, what is the topic? Well, we can look at this two ways. What is the specific topic, right? Uh, don't just yank a verse and say, here's what this means. Well, 
what does the verses around it mean? What, what's he even talking about? Does, does, does your usage of this go to what he's talking about? Okay, now, what is the broader topic? Look at the three chapters before it, or the three chapters after it. What is the purpose of the book? Does this fit in with the, the idea that he's trying, or is it just you kind of randomly said, I want this to be this? Right? So, so context is really important. And so we introduced that with, with Peter. Hey, here's what his broader topic is. Explore the language. It's another idea of context. What do the words mean? Now, 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 sometimes there's synonyms, and it's not significant. You know, a word might just be, he picked a word. But sometimes definitions, little differences make big differences. <laughs> Maybe he picked a specific, Paul sometimes, there's times where there's a word that Paul uses that doesn't exist in the Greek language. It's kind of interesting. Sometimes Paul made up words because he, he didn't have the right word. And he would just make up words. And it was like, this doesn't really exist in the Greek language. Not all the time, but there's a few times. Like, I'm just going to put these two words together and I have a new word. Because it's the idea I want. God did that. Right? They had a word, the Day of Atonement. Right? That's not a word in any language. There's no, there's, I mean, it's, we have it. It literally is at one minute. This is just an example. You know that word doesn't exist? In no other language does this concept exist because no other language has a thing for the Day of Atonement, which was a day where God said, okay, uh, I'm going to come down and be one with you by doing these things. You do these things, I will be at one with you and I will be in your presence one day a year until you mess up, which will probably be by the end of the day. Good luck. We'll have to wait till next year. And, and, and so there's a, there's, a, there's a word there. They understood the concept because they had it in their culture, but in no other culture in humanity has this, so we just make up words. Well, at one minute, because, you know. And, and Paul did this. So, so what do words mean? What does grammar mean? Now here you've got to be careful because we think in English grammar, and you can't always do that in Greek or Hebrew. But sometimes grammar is important. Right? It helps us explore the, the context the right way. I identify the scope of things. We did this. To whom is he talking? When is he talking? Right? Uh, those, are, those are important questions to ask. It might not be important, but they are important to ask them because we don't know. If we don't ask it, we don't know if it's important. A message addressed to Christians might be twisted if I try to make it a, a, a statement about how you become a Christian. Right? We do that all the time. Not we, but it happens. You will pay attention. Wait a minute, they're already Christians. He's not telling them how to be a Christian. You're taking that out of context. A message addressed to a city here is not necessarily a message that, that this specific church over here is, is experiencing. And these can be important in interpreting things. They might not be important, but again, we have to ask the question. We may benefit from it. There are all things that we can benefit from, 
Right? The, the, the Holy Spirit didn't make a, 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 whole, a, a scripture that can't be used. But promises, and this is where I want to get to today. Promises made may not apply to me. If I go out in the desert for 40 years, my shoes are probably going to wear out. Okay, I don't have that promise that my shoes aren't... I don't have the promise that I'm going to walk out into the desert for 40 years and, and bread's going to fall from heaven. I don't have that promise. That was made to a specific group of people for a specific period of time. Right? That's how promises work. If I'm hoping for those things, well, I'm going to be sadly disappointed. And my feet are going to hurt. And I'm going to be very hungry. Right? Because I'm claiming things that don't exist for me. Context is important. If I start assuming things, it's going to steal my joy. And that's where I want to get to the why of this. How do assumptions steal my joy? You might kind of gather where we're going. But I want to talk about, again, specifically these are assumptions of God. We can apply these. If I assume things about other people, it will steal my joy as well, eventually. But we've already talked about that, so we're going to focus on God today. Because these are the most dangerous things to get wrong. This is far, far more dangerous to you than, than having expectations of yourself that you can't meet, or having expectations of others that they can't meet. This is the most dangerous thing you can do, is to assume things about God and the Scriptures that are not true. And how do we get these assumptions? How do we get these assumptions? Well, we talked about being untaught and unstable. There are, as we say, a host of reasons. Sometimes we develop these simply on logic. A logic alone. We say things, you'll hear this. Well, if I were God, no, you're not. If I was God, I heard someone say this, I like this. If I was God, grass would grow about three inches and stop. But you're not. Why did God make mosquitoes? Don't know. He did. Right? We, we, if I was God, things would be different. They probably wouldn't work right. That's just going. Just, just saying. You've seen how things go when I'm up here with technology. Probably good that I'm not in charge of a, a, a planet. I don't think God would do this, really. See, what you're saying is, I wouldn't do that. I can't imagine that God would do this. What kind of a God would do that? And so we project on God our identity and our preferences, and it's, ex it's exclusively based on my logic. There's no scripture at all. Then we proceed to the Bible to try to find these things that we would or wouldn't do. And sometimes they're conclusions that we've drawn from an inaccurate reading of the Scripture. We are focused on our assumptions maybe maybe we heard something, maybe we've heard it misquoted. There are verses that you you 
I thought that was in the Bible. You start hunting for it, and it's not there. Because you just were raised thinking this verse was there, and it's not. Yeah, kind of. Like, okay, there's a similar verse. It might have been a line from a song you grew up singing in church, and it's, you find out it's not in there. Or if it is, it's like really talking about something different. And they have assumptions. I want to look at just a few common assumptions today. Because this is going to relate specifically to how it steals our joy. Romans 8.28. Uh, Romans 8.28. Good verse. But the source of the theft of joy... Romans 8.28 And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Everything happens for a reason. That, that's kind of a, the thought that's taken away here so frequently in, in one phraseology or another, and that's not what this says. Everything happens for a reason. Not true. Not in the sense that, that people mean it. What this says is that everything that happens can be used. For good. If you meet certain criteria. It does not say that they were all intended to do something so that it could be used for good. All situations could be used for good. Let me, let me illustrate this by turning to Luke. You notice that was Romans, by the way. Yeah. That's the only one from Romans, but but uh, but we could we could do everything I'm going to say here. I could probably do something from Romans, uh, Luke chapter thirteen. Verse one through five, he says, "Now there were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices." And Jesus said. Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse than all other Galileans because they suffered these things? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or of those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam uh, fell and killed, do you suppose that they were worse? No. But unless you repent, you all likewise perish. And this is the example. Jesus is saying, listen, there wasn't some divine thing that these were worse and so they had to be punished. And, and that's your logic. That's the way human logic works. Bad things must have deserved it. Some divine reason. Why did this happen? Right? Something happens, we go, why? Why did this happen? Because maybe there was a bad engineer for a tower. Maybe that's just the why. But what does Jesus do? Jesus then turns it into an, an admonition, an encouragement to repent. So he uses it. All things can be used for God's purpose. But that doesn't mean that Jesus like, was up there going, you know what, I'm going to kill these people so that I can later use this in a story. You see the difference? God can use all things, but, but we sit there and go, well, everything happens for a reason. 
That's a misuse of Romans. And I'm going to share with you how... We're going to come back through these one more time and kind of look at how this damages us. Here's another one, James chapter 4. James chapter 4. And we could compile a long list of these. We could compile such a list. We're just going to give kind of an idea so that you kind of notice these things that people do regularly within the religious within the religious word, world. Uh, James chapter 4, and beginning in verse 13, he says, Now come, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go and here or there this city and, and spend a year and sell and make a profit. Wherefore, you do not know what will happen tomorrow. What's your life? It's a vapor that appears for a little while. It vanishes away. And instead, you ought to have said, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But now you're boast, you boast in your arrogance, and this is evil. To him who knows to do good and doesn't do it, that's sin. And we come to the show me your will conversation. Just show me your will. That's not in here. That is not what this says. A quick reading, bringing an assumption to this passage will bring the wrong conclusion to this passage. He does not say, ask God if it's His will to go to this city and do this thing. He says, make your plans, just understand, you might die on the way. That's all. You are free to make your plans to go and be a merchant in this city or that city. You don't have to ask if it's God's will for you to go. Just understand you might get hit by a bus on the way. You don't know. You got all these intentions to, to make a great profit and, and, and you're bragging about things that you don't understand if they're going to even happen. That's all he says. I want to look at the reality of this. Matthew chapter 12. That's the twist, and here's the reality. right here. I'm just trying to get this. There we go. Matthew 12, 38. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered and said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he said to them, A wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign. And no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, we could apply what we talked about. Let's look at context. Who is he talking about? He's talking to Pharisees. But he does not say, you Pharisees are wicked and adulterous. He says, here is a general principle. In other words, here's a principle that applies beyond the Pharisees. I'm going to take this principle and it applies to you, but it applies beyond Pharisees. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign. End statement. Now, I, I, I've sought signs before, and I don't feel wicked and adulterous. Okay? So, so how do I rectify those two situations? So, uh, so I want to give two illustrations from my background, from people I know. 
And I, I, I will show steps here. And then I'll explain this. We came back from Ukraine, and a good friend of mine, uh, uh, I, I've known for a while, we went to the church and I saw his wife there. And I said, where's Dwayne? And I've been overseas for two years. I don't stay up on things. And the room, or the area, it was like right after church, got dead silent. And it was super awkward and I knew I stepped in something. Divorced. He lived in another in an apartment of right above another Christian family in the church. That didn't work out so well. Later on on Facebook, I see Dwayne's post about how God gave him this wonderful woman. No, he didn't. You took her. That was not God's will. Don't blame it on God. But a sign, likely, that he was okay to do this. Right? That's a common story. That's a common story. Where, where, where this is why a wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign. Because signs are manipulatable. Right? What are the things that people use for signs? God, do this for me, and I will do this. But, but we always pick things. You'll, you'll notice that people always pick things that are kind of natural in occurrence. Right? People always pick things that, 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 can, that can be manipulated. Like, like, like uh, God, give me, a, if you want me to go to this city and buy and sell, blah, 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 right? uh, that you will give me a job opportunity there. Well, do natural people ever get job opportunities there? Yes. Do people ever sell their house? Yes. Do people ever have some success in their life? Yes. So I can do something and, and, and manipulate the results to be what I want. And, and people do that to the point where they can even say, it's God's will for me to divorce my wife and marry this one. And that's why a wicked and adulterous generation seeks for them. He's not saying that everybody who's ever asked for a sign is wicked and adulterous. But he's saying, this is the method of wicked and adulterous generation. They look for manipulatable signs. When, when, when we always, you know, always look at Gideon putting out the fleece. When he put out the fleece, he did something that defies the laws of physics twice. He did a blind, double-blind study, right? It defied the laws of physics twice. And God did it. Do something if you want to. Ask God, if, if you really believe in signs, ask God to defy the laws of physics to prove it. See, well, we don't do that because we know he's not going to. Let me give you a lighter story. A person that I don't think was a wicked and adulterous person. A good friend of mine from college, Billy. If Billy ever listens to this, he'll laugh. Billy moved to a lot of places that were God's will. Colorado, Minnesota, Louisiana. And he'd come back to Iowa or wherever, or Missouri or wherever. 
And it was God's will. And it always seemed to me slightly coincidental that, that wherever God's will led him, there was this girl. <laughs> it's, it's just neat how God worked like that. Now, he's married to one of those girls. And I don't think Billy's a bad person. Right? But, but it just always seemed that way. It was the manipulatable sign. God wants me to go here. No, what you're doing is you're wanting a thing and blaming it on God. That's really the reality. And, and that tendency is dangerous. Because even if you don't feel wicked and adulterous, it can end up there. It can end up there. There are so many of these. God wants me to be happy. Or God wants me to be fill in the blank. Right? And there's so many scriptures that we can use there. And that's a, a source of prosperity doctrine. I know the plans that God has for me. And all these, all these different ones that are taken out of context. But I want to look at how these assumptions damage us. I want to give us the why as we, as we close up here. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to break into the middle of the context. Okay? I will not damage the context. There is one body, verse 4. One spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. And he's talking about unity. That's the context. It's the nature of these things. That These, these are the source of unity. That There's one of these, so, so we should be unified if we all agree on the one of these. Right? We have one Lord, that's Christ. We have one God, who is Father of all. There's one Spirit. So, so there should be, we should all be affected by the same Spirit, and this is all how unity works. And, and, and we, we develop lots of ideas on these, and there's one of these that we don't really pay a lot of attention to. There's one that we, kinda, we just kind of skim past it, because we're, we're more, more focused on making sure we talk about one Father, you know, when we were talking about doctrine and and, and the Trinity and, and things like that. And, and we pay, pay a lot of attention to the one baptism. We spend a lot of time there. But he says there's one hope. Assumptions assault hope. And there's one of them. Now, I'm not saying that within that one hope there's not different things we hope for. But ultimately, there is one thing that is the source of my hope. <coughs> that is Christ and his death. And that's that. When we live on assumptions, we start building competing hopes for this. And, and all of these things that we've mentioned do this in one way or the other. Eventually, these all fall, fall short of, of being able to provide me hope. And I've known people, as I've said, 
who have shipwrecked their faith because they put their hope in these assumptions. Eventually, you manipulate something that's dangerous. If you're the type that can manipulate something to achieve an end, you will eventually manipulate something that's dangerous. It might not affect you today. Today it just might take you to Colorado and back until you find a wonderful girl and you marry. And, and you, That might be all it is. But it might take you further. But eventually I cannot... Uh, eventually I will find myself... Let's say something different. Eventually I'll find myself in a tragedy or a situation where I'm trying to explain it. Because I believe that everything happens for a reason. And there seems to be no reason why God would let this happen. But I have the false assumption that there is, and so I go desperately looking for it. And it's not to be found. Or here's another one. This happened to a friend of mine. A person constantly looking for signs that this was his will to do this or that. Who's no longer in the church. Who no longer believes in God. Because the manipulatable signs were no longer there. When those everyday successes, you get a string of them and it's wonderful and it feels good. But, but when those successes stop, it feels like there's no God talking to you, telling you what to do. And you no longer have anything to manipulate. And now it feels like, well, maybe there was never a God. You had a hope in something that was a false hope. And these I've observed in people's lives that I know. All of them. These are not made up. These are not... These are real people. These are real warnings I'm giving to you. They're false hope. And I doubt God. Not because God doesn't exist. Not because God failed to do what he said, but because God failed to do and accomplish a promise that I thought he should be doing. He's never, never told me. Like, I'm sorry, I never told you that I was going to help you uh, in the desert for 40 years with no shoes. That, that's not something I ever told you. I told a different group of people that. And so eventually, faith gets shipwrecked. And so I have a choice. It's quite easy to conclude that God never existed. And that's the easy choice. And that's the choice that people often choose. Rather than to reflect on my assumptions and say, back up, maybe my assumptions were wrong. No, that's not a question. It's interesting that people will deny God, the existence of God, before they will deny that their assumptions about religious things were wrong. That, that's an odd thing. I still cling to a religious idea even though I don't believe in the God who I think I got it from. That's a weird, that's a weird thing. But that's the conclusion that people will make. And then there's the other choice, and this is where I want to leave you with the other, the other possibility. 
is to recalibrate. You have to do that. I have to do that. I was planning on doing it today. I don't know if that's going to work. I got a gun. I haven't hunted in years. Years. I sighted it in. I went with Cam and we sighted it in. I, and the problem is, of course, I, I can't find any ammo for it. Well, I finally found ammo for it. Guess what? We, we spent an afternoon, and I mean ammo's not cheap for this gun. I spent about 30 bucks in ammo just getting it to be relatively close. I finally found ammo, more expensive than that, uh, but it's a different power. So he's like, it's going to shoot higher. I spent an afternoon wasting money, <laughs> 30 bucks, that I'm going to have to do this, and it's now significantly colder. I find myself in the predicament where I could say, you know what, I'm just going to press on and do whatever I'm doing. I could hang it all up, and then I've spent money on a gun, ammo, and all my paraphernalia, and forget it all. I'm staying inside, and I'm buying hamburger. Hey. <laughs> or I can recalibrate it. It's really the best option. I'm invested in something significant. The deer are safe, so don't worry about it. But I might as well not. But the, the idea is, okay, we, we've come down and I've got a false hope. If I go out there today, I've got a false hope of doing anything. So I need to recalibrate. Just make some minor adjustments. Accept that things are not the way they are. In my mind. Right, spiritually, we have to do that from time to time. I have a hope. But sometimes hope is... I don't, I don't feel something. Well, maybe the reason I'm not feeling something is because what I'm intending and the standards that I've set for God, God has never promised me. Go back and see... Read the context of things and see if the promises that he made to you are the promises you're expecting. So they might be different. And I think when we do that, it will actually be freeing to get rid of these assumptions. Travis. Can I say 119?